You're listening to a message from Oaks Church, Brooklyn. Our longing is to see heaven come to earth in our city. For more information on our church and community, please visit oaksbk.church. The teaching text today comes from Luke 24, verses 13 through 25. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things? he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. If you don't know me, my name is Ryan, one of the pastors here, and today we are starting a new series. We've just gone through this past few weeks talking about the good way, talking about what it is to have a rule of life, to live a life oriented and intentioned around the person and work of Jesus through the lens of eight spiritual practices that kind of form us as a community. And today we're going to be starting a new series entitled The Good Word, The Good Way, The Good Word. You could say we weren't that creative this month, but the good word nonetheless, because it is good. Amen. So we're starting this series, and here's why. We're going to, these next few weeks, so the month of November, we're going to be exploring an essential question, which is, what is the Bible? Now, the reason we're doing this is twofold. Number one, if you've come here long enough, we preach from the Bible, we sing words that occur in the Bible, our liturgy is formed and shaped by the scriptures. And yet that fundamental question, what is the Bible, is often a question we maybe haven't taken time to think through. What is this text that has ordered our faith and practice? So that's one one part is just, you know, we have to think about this question. But secondly, we're actually going through this question because in the new year, starting in January, we're actually starting a congregation-wide journey through the scriptures. Yeah, it's going to be really exciting. So... When I say journey, I mean it's probably going to take us like two years. So I'll just, just hold, hold your horses. You know, it's, it's, going, to, it's going to get intense, it's going to be, but it's going to be good. We're going to be starting, our, our preaching, our sermon series will be centered around the story from Genesis all the way to Revelation. And here's why. Many of us, we, we, we're Christians, we, we identify with the person and work of Jesus, but are unfamiliar with the story that Jesus himself said he was the fulfillment of. And so it would make sense then as followers of Jesus that we'd understand and 
root ourselves in that story, understand why Jesus is the surprising fulfillment of that story. But to get into the story, we have to talk about this book called the Bible. And before we do that, I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll dive in. Father, we come to you today um, to be hearers of, not just hearers of your word, but doers of your word, to receive from your scriptures all that is need for life and godliness. So I pray, would you open up our ears to hear? Would you open up our eyes to see? Would we be able to perceive what you want to say to us today? In Jesus' name, amen. And amen. So what is the Bible? In some ways, this question actually is pretty easy to answer. A quick Google search can get you the basic facts, right? 66 books, Jewish Old Testament, Christian New Testament, written in Hebrew, Greek, a bit of Aramaic there in Daniel, right? You can kind of Google search, you know, the, the kind of the key plot points, uh, the, the, the key things that make the Bible the Bible, right? It's a collection of books, poetry, history, legal literature, um, historic accounts, letters, this weird thing called apocalyptic literature. All these things are mixed in together in this book we call the Bible, and so, on some, in some level, this is an easy question to answer, and you're thinking, well, okay, if it's that easy, why are we spending three weeks on it? Because there's a different need to know facts about a thing versus knowing the essence of a thing. You know, I can know you in the sense that I could do a quick search on your Instagram and maybe learn your name, the date of your birth, your last name, where your family is from. I can maybe learn your occupation. I can learn all the basic facts of your life, but to know the basic facts about a thing isn't necessarily to know a thing, right? That's why you, you, we don't just know people based on the, the facts that make them up. We understand fundamentally that we are not just the facts of our life, but who we are is something deep and rooted in our purpose and in who, in who we've been created to be. That to know someone is to know the depths of their essence. This is actually um, a, a concept we see in, in Aristotle, the great Greek philosopher. Where he says, you know, that th th there's the... There's the acidens of a thing. There are the, the qualities that we can identify. Okay, a zebra has stripes, so it makes it a zebra, right? It has this shape to it. But, but those qualities aren't the substance of a thing. The substance of a thing is, is that core thing that makes it real and true. And so while we can answer the question, what is the Bible, by getting all the facts about the Bible, what is the Bible in its substance, in its essence? And I want to put before us today that the Bible is what is called a meta-narrative. A meta-narrative. You don't not familiar with that term. The, a meta-narrative is a all-encompassing narrative. It's made famous by Jean Francis Lyotard. He, he defines a meta-narrative as a totalitizing account that claims to explain historical events or experiences, social and cultural phenomena based on a universal truth. Based on that definition, that is what the Bible is. It is a meta-narrative. It is a story that claims to explain all of life. It is a story that claims to explain why you are the way you are, who you are, why the world is the way it is, why does suffering occur, why, 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 why does human life happen like it happens. It, it's a story that claims to answer all those big questions. Any good meta-narrative answers all the big questions. Why are we here? To what purpose are we oriented? And so the scripture at its core, the Bible, is this story that proposes itself as a meta-narrative, as something that claims to explain the totality of human experience. 
But the question is, what narrative is this story telling? And what happens when, um, when this narrative interacts with our narrative? See, in, in the conception of meta-narrative meta made famous by Jean Francis, he, he makes the claim that there are meta-narratives and then there are small, we all have small localized narratives. We all have our story, our unique perspective. And, and there's actually a, a tension because a meta-narrative comes in and actually claims even your small localized personal stories, this story, the meta-narrative claims to explain, and that's essentially what the Bible is. You have your story, you have your life, you have where you come from, how you were brought up, the, the things you believe, and the Bible comes in and says, actually, even your personal individual story claims to make sense of. The question is, what does that look like? And what are these qualities intrinsic to the Bible that make it a compelling meta-narrative? Because the claim is there are other competing narratives. There are other overarching narratives that claim to explain who we are and why we're here. Whether those like the, the political narratives, so Karl Marx's um, famous um, proposition about, about the proletariat and the struggle against the bourgeoisie, that is a meta-narrative. It claims to say why we're here and who we are. There are other meta, other meta narratives, other religious meta narratives that claim to explain why we are and, and, and why, why we're here and who we are. There's all types of stories competing. So, what makes the meta narrative of the Bible compelling? What makes it something that's transformative and true? Even in our postmodern society, where we've actually neglected the belief of meta-narratives, that neglecting the belief in big stories that explain all of life is itself a big story that explains all of life. That's the great conundrum. That even if we don't believe there are big, big truths that explain everything that's going on in the world, that itself is a big truth that's trying to explain everything that's going on in the world. And so the cycle continues. And so we're here to figure out today why, what is the Bible, in asking the question, what makes its narrative compelling? And what happens when it interacts with the narratives we hold to be true? And so to that today, we're going to turn to our teaching text in Luke 29, the story of the Emmaus Road. A bit of context. Three days ago, Jesus died. He was crucified on the cross like an enemy of the Roman state. A crucifixion, they didn't just crucify anybody. Usually crucifixion was used to crucify political opponents who stood up against the Roman government. Because guess what? What's the best way to tell people don't up... Don't start an uprising and go against us. You take their leaders, you string them up on a cross, and you leave them outside for all to see. So, context. These disciples are leaving Jerusalem because they just witnessed something horrific. They witnessed their leader, Jesus, who they thought was going to bring about a revolution that was going to overthrow the, Ro the Roman occupation, occupation of first century Palestine, was going to free the Jewish people, was going to reestablish the Davidic monarchy. That Jesus is now dead on a cross, and it's three days later. Now, we have the benefit of hindsight, so we know they're, they're missing some facts. Jesus is now alive and well, but they don't know that. And so they're leaving Jerusalem. They're leaving this place of this utter loss, and heading to the town of Emmaus. Now, that location is important. Details in the Bible are important. And there, there are some scholars who believe Emmaus, the, the, the Emmaus they're walking to is the same Emmaus where Judah Maccabee, who was a great Jewish revolutionary, who 
prior to the life of Jesus had freed the Jews from oppression, that Emmaus, this Emmaus they're walking to is the site of one of his great victories. And so we actually have this thematic tension set up right in the beginning. They're leaving Jerusalem and the failed revolution of Jesus, and they're walking towards Emmaus because maybe it's time to return to how we used to get revolution, through violent conflict and struggle. And so there's this tension. They've, there's the Jesus that's failed them because he's a failed revolutionary in their eyes, and now they're walking to Emmaus, maybe with some hope, that the same kind of people that rescued Israel before, that great victory won in Emmaus, maybe they can experience again. But it's not going to happen with this Jesus character. And we enter the story. And it's interesting because who else shows up but Jesus himself? So picture with me, two disciples leaving Jerusalem. They're talking about this failed revolution by Jesus who ended up on a cross, and then guess who shows up walking by them on the road? It's Jesus. Actually, that phrase, Jesus himself, is actually a, it's a little Greek construction, um, a, a little word play, because what the author is trying to tell you, there is no doubt it's Jesus. It is Jesus himself. There's no doubt. Like, as readers, we were supposed to read that and say, okay, no, 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 there's no way they can get this confused. This is Jesus. This is the resurrected, risen Jesus walking alongside them. And then all of a sudden, he comes up alongside them, asks them a question, and they cannot recognize them. They cannot recognize him. You have to imagine, these are disciples. They're described as disciples. We had the 12 that followed Jesus, but about, uh, uh, scholars argue about 100 people also followed alongside Jesus. These are people who spent time with Jesus. Jesus shows up, and they go, huh, who's this guy? Now, you have to imagine, it would be weird. You've been coming to this church for some time, and I bump into you on the subway, and you go, huh, who's that guy? It would be weird because we, we, we've had some face time. We, we spent some time together. I think actually in, in, my, commu- in my community group, uh, uh, it was probably maybe summer, we were, me and my, my wife and I were seeing some friends. We go into the subway and we bump into James, who's in our community group. And luckily he didn't go, huh, who is that guy? We recognize each other, right? We spent time together. So you should be able to recognize someone you spent a lot of time with, and yet they're kept from recognizing him. And that's an interesting point. What's stopping them from recognizing him? And this is something scholars and theologians have debated. What's going on here? Is God purposefully blinding them? Are they just so, so overcome with grief that they can't even see who this Jesus is? What I would want to proposition is this. I think they were so set on what they thought the Messiah was going to be, they could not recognize him when he was in front of them. That they were so set on what they expected Jesus to be, how they expected the story to go, how they thought a Messiah should conquer and save and redeem. They were so set on it that when they could look the Messiah in the face, resurrected in the flesh and go, huh, who is that guy? And here we learn in this little interaction something fundamental about the Bible itself is that You do not come to the story of Scripture. You do not come to the Bible empty-handed. You come with your perspective. 
You come with your experience, and that perspective or experience will affect how you read this text. That you don't, there's no such thing as an objective observer. Actually, it's why we mistrust the news nowadays, because for many years, what did people want to emphasize? Fair and balanced reporting, objective reporting of the facts. And then we did a lot of study on how people report the news, and then we realized, oh, there's never been an objective reporter in history. I did my undergrad in history, so I went to school because I wanted to be a history professor, ended up here somehow. And, and, and so, right, when I went to school for history, the first thing you learn, day one of what the class is, what is history, is that there are no objective historians. The, the word history is just the past as it's been interpreted by others. So none of us come to the text of scripture without baggage, without expectations, without a worldview that affects how we read. And so we see in this interaction with Cleopas and his companion in Jesus that it is quite possible to have a view of God, a view of who we think Jesus should be, come to the scriptures and completely miss him. We all have what's called enabling and disabling biases. We, we all have biases that affect how we read the scripture. The question is, do we recognize them? What we read here with Cleopas is Cleopas has yet to understand that his very perception of who the Messiah should be is keeping him from, from perceiving the Messiah in front of him. Our very perception of God should be, how God should be in our eyes, might prevent us from seeing him as he's revealed in his word. The story goes on. Jesus, being Jesus, Ask them a question, which I always found this interaction funny. He said, hey, what are you guys talking about? And like, don't you know what's, are you the only person in all of Israel who has no idea what's happened in Jerusalem? Now, we know the story. Jesus is well acquainted with what just happened. He did it. He did the whole crucifixion thing. He died. He rose three days later. He's well aware with what just happened. But of course, whenever Jesus asks a question in scripture, it's less about him and more about the people listening. And so he asks them this question, and then Cleopas goes on a rant. He says, well, there was this Jesus guy. We thought he was going to be the prophet that redeemed us. We thought that he was the Messiah, that he was going to come in and redeem Israel and save us from the Roman Empire, but he's dead. And really, what are we going to do, stick around and wait for the rest of his enemies to drag us up too? No, no, let's get out of here. And so Jesus asks this question, and in asking this question, their cards are kind of put on the table. Jesus, in his asking this question, reveals the stories they hold to be true. Cleopas and his companion had a clear vision of who the Messiah should have been. They had a clear vision. And in their mind, it was a biblically, biblically informed vision of who the Messiah should have been. They read the prophets. Their hope was based on the scriptures of Isaiah and Jeremiah, Malachi. Their hopes are based on in the end of the Torah after Moses died where it says Israel is still waiting for a prophet like Moses. Their hopes are rooted in the scriptures they claim to believe, and yet the very fulfillment of that scriptures is in front of them, and they cannot see it. And Jesus asks this question, what's going on? And it kind of lays bare everything they believe the Messiah should have been. And here we get to our second fundamental quality about scripture. That scripture is first and foremost a revealing text. 
because we come to Scripture with our preloaded presuppositions about God, about ourselves, about who we are, that the Bible at its core, the, the story it's telling is a story that reveals us. It is like a staring into the mirror. When we read the scriptures, when we get into the Bible, all of a sudden we're faced with the mirror of who we are and what we believe. Because the Bible claims things, those claims rub up against our claims, and the tension of reading scripture is who's right. Me and the claims I bring to the text or the, te the claims the text is making. And so the Bible is first and foremost a revealing text. Because in this interaction with Cleopas and Jesus and his companion, in his asking this question, all everything Cleopas is, believes is revealed and put on front street. And it's the same interaction we have with Scripture. Whenever we read Scripture, everything we believe is put on the table. And the Bible then asks the question, which one of us is right? So the Bible is first and foremost this revealing text. So now Cleopas and his companion, everything's laid on the table, everything's bare. And guess what? It's so, they're, they're so entrenched in their own story about who the Messiah could be, they even drop this bomb. Some women in our, who are our companions came and told us that the tomb is empty, that angels appeared to them and said he's alive. So not only do they have the story they believed, but now they have this new information. And because they're so entrenched in what they believe the Messiah should be, they don't even have a category for an empty tomb. Even presented with new evidence about the reality of this story, taking on a new and surprising twist and turn, they go, it must be them. They must be crazy. Because why are they leaving Jerusalem? Imagine... Jesus, you're, you're a follower of Jesus. Jesus dies. You get news that his tomb is empty and he might be alive. If you had room in your categories for a dying and rising Messiah, maybe you'd stick around and find out. But they're so entrenched in their own categories and how they thought the story should go that even this new information, they can't even comprehend it. And so Jesus, in asking this question, reveals the stories they hold to be true. But Jesus doesn't leave them there. He just doesn't let them share and then say, okay, that's what you believe. No, no, no. Jesus then follows up and he says this. He says, you who are foolish in heart and slow to believe all the prophets wrote. All of a sudden, Jesus is saying to them, you guys think you understand the story, but you really don't. And here we come to our second key quality of the scriptures, that the Bible is secondly a subversive text. The Bible comes in, it brings to the forefront, it reveals everything we believe, and then turns everything we believe on its head. And so Jesus says, listen, your strong words, foolish and slow to believe all the prophets had written. There's an important key thing there. Jesus is not saying that, they, that, that they've misread the prophets but that they were selective in their reading of the prophets. He's saying all the prophets have written. In other words, Jesus is making this claim. If you really read the prophets and you put aside how you thought the story should have gone, then you would have recognized that actually the Messiah needed to suffer and die. But he, what he's pointing out to them, and this is how he's kind of subverting their own narratives, is you thought the Messiah should have been victorious, sword in hand, slaying Romans, establishing the Davidic kingdom again, showing up throne, power, white horse, bloody Romans on the street. And he's saying, 
that's how you guys are reading the text. But if you read all of it, you'd realize that actually the way the kingdom comes is far more subversive than that. In the kingdom, death becomes life. In the kingdom, a mustard seed can grow up into a mighty tree for the nations. In the kingdom, you can have five loaves and two fish and feed a multitude. In, in the subversive nature of the kingdom, death and decay are actually just room for restoration and healing and growth. And if we look at the life of Jesus and his miracles, we see the subversive effects of the kingdom at work, that the scripture, the story of scripture has always been a subversive story. It's always been about taking what is obvious, how we think we should achieve power, how we think we should self-actualize, how we think we should find meaning and wholeness, and it turns us on to set and says, hey, listen, if you want to gain your life, if you want to gain life, well, you got to lose it. Listen, you're trying to hold on to your life, you might lose it. The story of the narrative of Scripture has always been about turning what we believe on our heads. And it looks like not a conquering Messiah with a sword in hand, but one who dies limp on a cross. And so fundamentally, what the story of Scripture is, what the Bible is, is this subversive text that takes what we believe and turns it on its head. It says, there is a way that you think is right, but that is the way that leads to death. It actually goes on to say in the Scripture's that God's foolishness is wiser than man's wisdom. There's always been this tension, this, this relationship between how we think life should go and how God moves and works in the world. And it's always in this subversive, upside-down way. Matter of fact, if you go to the book of Acts, and they're talking about the believers who are gathering, what they say about them is so key to understand who we are as a people. These are the ones who turn the world upside down. That the Bible at its core is an invitation to a subversive way of living that turns on its head what we think to be true. The first shall be last. The last shall be first. Enemies can become friends. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. If someone hits you on the cheek, give them the other cheek. If someone says, hey, take my... Take my, take my cloak, take my equipment, give them everything you got. Go the extra mile. This is the subversive message of the kingdom, and it's what, at its essence what the scriptures is. It's, it's a subversive story that turns the world on its head, what we believe. Our stories are revealed. The Bible brings our stories to the forefront. It puts on front street everything we believe about the world, and then it says, I'm going to flip the script. I'm going to turn it upside down. I'm going to offer you a new subversive way of living. And so Jesus then goes to Cleopas and his companion, and he reinterprets the entire story of Scripture around a dying and rising Messiah. All of a sudden, the story of Scripture, which in their minds should have looked like military power, Messiah leading a revolution, all of a sudden makes new sense in light of a Messiah who dies and rises again. Their stories are revealed. Jesus reveals their stories. He subverts their stories. And he reinterprets these sto the story they believe in light of himself. That is what the scripture is. The scripture, what we talked about before, is that meta-narrative. It does claim to explain all of human experience. But it does so 
by subverting what we expect of human experience, how we think life should go. In a dog-eat-dog in a dog world, in, 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 a, in a city where wealth and power and the pursuit of more is the name of the game, the scripture says actually a call to radical generosity and simplicity, a call to lay one's life down for the other. This is the subversive nature of the story we claim to be true. This is what the Bible is. And so Jesus, he reinterprets the entire story that they hold to be true, turns it on their head, goes back to the prophets and Moses and retells the story in light of his death and resurrection. And yet we're left with a key narrative tension. Jesus essentially gives them the greatest Bible lesson of all time. Okay? Picture me with this. The dude who wrote, writes the story, because, you know, God in flesh, God being the divine author of scripture. He wrote the story. He was there before time began, preordaining all things to his purposes. That would be like he got up here and explained the Bible to us. I would love to have sat out a Bible study with Jesus. It's like meeting the author, right? Like, who wouldn't want to do that? I, I'm a big Lord of the Rings fan, um, J.R.R. Tolkien, the man, myth, legend himself. One of my, some of my favorite things to read is his writings about his own story. Because there's nothing more compelling than an author's perspective. So they get the author's perspective on the story, and the tension remains, they still don't recognize him. So not only has the, he's given them new categories, he's completely subverted what, they, what the Messiah was going to do and who he was going to be, and yet they're looking at him saying, who's this guy? And so they continue the journey with him, and they... Messiah, um, Jesus, the Messiah, walking alongside them, still don't know who he is. They go to turn in for the night, um, and Jesus, being modest, says, oh, I'm going to keep going. You don't need to host me. They're like, no, we insist. Come, come stay with us. And so Jesus goes to, to sit with them. And it's funny, in the text, Jesus is the guest, but then he immediately becomes the host, we keep reading, Jesus sits with them, and usually the host would be the one who broke the bread and, pat and served everyone the food, but, but Jesus placed host here. And I'm going to bring us to the text, just so we can get a clear picture of what's happening here. Happening here. And so, Jesus, he sits down with them, and he says this. Well, it doesn't say, but he does this. He takes the bread and broke it and blessed it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they knew him and he vanished out of their sight. The moment he breaks the bread, they know him. There's something in that action of breaking bread that he, they know him and, 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 and band, you guys can come on up and um, communion server, servers, you don't have to get up right this second, but in, a, in just in like five minutes, <laughs> give or take, preacher's promise. Uh, he breaks the bread and in that moment, it's like their eyes are opened. And, I, and I've wrestled why this happens this way. I, I, I've, in, in my years of study, I, I wonder why it works like this. Maybe they're just reminded of, like, 
you know, Jesus breaking bread and blessing it on his ministry or, I've, like, what's the practical answer? I think it's something more fundamental than that. And it has to do with what the scripture is at its core. Is the moment Jesus breaks bread in front of them, they're invited into a real experience with a person, not the subject of a story. Hear me. In the breaking of bread, they're brought into a real experience with a real, living, breathing person, not simply the subject of a story. Up until this point, the Messiah in their minds is this possible redeemer figure from Old Testament, from the Old Testament. And up until now, that picture of that character, of that Messiah figure, has failed them. But now they're brought into interaction with a real person who is the very subject of that story. It is upon this real encounter that they recognize him. Third thing about what the Bible is, is that the Bible is a realizing text. You're like, what does that mean? The word realize is literally the etymology of that word is to make real. That's, a re- that's to realize something. We, we understand that cognitively. Oh, you, oh I re- you realize something about a fact or something you're reading. You have this kind of moment of epiphany. But really, the, the root of that word is this idea of making real. And this is what the text of Scripture is. It is a story that brings us into contact with reality. That the, the text and story of Scripture does not remain in the text, but brings us out of the text and into contact with a person who is the sum total subject, author, and witness of that story. It's as if every time you opened a book you loved, the author was sitting across the room from you and wanted to dialogue with you. To open the scriptures, this is what this, this text, to open this text is to suddenly realize the author has been present the entire time I've been reading it. And actually the whole goal of this story is not to bring us into some intellectual knowledge of a possible redeemer, but to bring us into a reality and an actual knowledge of an embodied redeemer who actually wants to have relationship with you, who actually wants to meet you where you're at. Communion service, come up please. And this is why we come to this moment in the table. Because the sum total of this story is actually to bring us into contact with a person. That is what the Bible is. The Bible is a text that brings us into contact with a person. And are there literary elements to explore? Absolutely. Are, are there interesting historical tidbits and facts about the scriptures? Absolutely. But all those things, we believe, are to bring into bring you into contact with a living person. There's something interesting about the incarnation that we tend to forget, which is Jesus ascends to heaven in his incarnate body, in his redeemed human body. So that in Christian theology, in the throne room of God is a person interceding to the Father for you. And that the sum goal of this story is to bring you in contact to that person that you might have a relationship with him. And that's why we come to this meal. It's interesting, when Jesus wanted us to remember him, he didn't give us words to remember, he gave us something to eat. Because it's a reminder that the Christian faith has never been about ideas and possible stories, but about reality 
in an embodied God. And so I'm going to invite us to the table, and we're going to take of the Lord's feast. And when we think of this journey, we're going to go through this journey through Scripture. It's going to be very easy to intellectualize it, and I love that because I, I, I love all the nerdy stuff when it comes to the Bible. But in January, we go through this story. The one thing we must keep on the forefront in the midst of that journey is that this journey is ultimately about a person. And to lose sight of the person is to lose sight of the story. So, let's come to the table and meet with the person of the story. Holy and gracious Father, in your infinite love, you made us for yourself. And when we sinned against you and became subject to evil and death, you and your mercy sent your only son, Jesus Christ, for our salvation. On the night that he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus Christ took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, Jesus took the cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. Therefore, we proclaim the mystery of faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. The gifts of God for the people of God. Come, meet in flesh the person that is the goal of that story we're studying. Come and eat.